to Wellbeing Wednesdays. I am your host, Courtney Weaver. I am also the director over at WellWVU here at West Virginia University. And with me today is a friend of the podcast, a repeat, Dr. Frankie Tack, who is a clinical assistant professor and she's coordinator of the Mental Health and Addiction Studies Bachelor Degree Program in the Department of Counseling and Learning Sciences, as if that isn't the longest <laughs> explanation of a title in the history of titles. But welcome back, Frankie. And for those who are unfamiliar with you, why don't you tell us a little bit about yourself and your role here at the university? Sure. And first of all, thanks for having me back again, Courtney. It was a blast last time. And, you know, I'm always looking for for ways we can get out more information about addiction and recovery. So it's great to be here. Yeah. So I'm a, I'm an, a clinical assistant professor, uh, as you said, in the Department of Counseling and Learning Sciences. My main area is, is addiction studies. And I've been in working in clinical world in the treatment of addiction and in the educational world for about 25 years. So I've been doing this a long time, but it's such important and such meaningful work. And with the opioid crisis, I'm, I'm just very grateful to be in West Virginia and get to do the work. Mm-hmm. For sure. And for our listeners, if Frankie's voice sounds familiar, it also might be because she was featured on the Purpose Institute's launch video that President Gordon Gee played at the State of the University. It was a nice surprise to see you at the end of that video, Frankie. Well, thank you. It's it was very humbling to be asked to do it, but but I tell you that's one thing about careers I think in this area, you know, people sometimes say to me, "Wow, addiction, ooh, that must be rough." And yeah, I mean, every profession has has its challenges, but I don't ever question my purpose, you know, like how I'm spending my time each day and whether it's worth it. That and and that to me is just, you know, invaluable. Yeah, it's a really lucky position to be in for sure. So in in the realm of addiction, one of the, I don't know if it's a hot topic, but a very common topic that you see is this idea of stigma. And so people have probably heard this word a lot, but may not have the words to be able to describe it. So Frankie, how would you define stigma? Sure. Well, we think of stigma as kind of a, a mark of shame or or discredit. And you know, if 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 folks remember back to high school English, the Scarlet Letter. You know, I think they still read that. You know, and the the character had the big scarlet A for adultery on her chest. That was a a literal mark of shame and stigma. So basically, stigma is shaming something, uh, someone for something. And so in our case, when we talk about addiction, we talk about shaming someone for having an addiction, for telling them it's their fault, they're a failure, and somehow they're immoral, and and they just don't care, which we call the moral model. So so stigma is putting people down for having having a condition or a situation. And, and we really don't see it just in the area of addiction. I know it, with my right. background as a sex educator, I mean, the stigma that comes with any kind of sexually transmitted infection is also really huge. And that's why people yes. don't want to talk about it, don't want to talk to their partners about it. There's also that stigma of mental health that, you know, sort of prevents people from seeking help if they need it. And so stigma can really get in the way of people leading, you know, healthy and responsible lives. So what do you think in your mind, what influences the perpetuation of stigma? 
Yeah, well, I think first and foremost, there's a lack of education or understanding on whatever the topic is that that really drives this idea that, well, the person must just be a bad person. So instead of a, me finding out the facts and really understanding what's happening, I just jump to the conclusion because it hasn't happened to me and it's happened to them. They must be a bad person. So, you know, I, I think lack of understanding. The other thing I think that that that's a big driver is that some people themselves have had pain, you know, emotional, physical, mental pain or whatever from a situation. And so they kind of have some baggage about the topic, either that or, you know, someone's someone's inflicted some pain on them about it. Or when it comes to things, I think, like sexually transmitted diseases, we're afraid. And so we, out of our fear, instead of getting educated and making good behavioral choices ourselves, we just take the shortcut and say, well, that must have happened to them because they're a bad person. They did something wrong. You know, they didn't care. They're, they're, they're just a yucky, skanky person. Right. And, you know, instead of really trying to understand how these, how these situations occur. Yeah. So tell us a little bit more about how stigma can create barriers to care, particularly with substance misuse. Sure. Well, you know, there's so many different levels. We talk about, you know, who who perpetuates stigma. It's really everyone from, you know, just an individual who knows someone who has an addiction to family members, to community members, neighbors, and you just keep going up in terms of the size of the groups. And that, and it's, it's all across the board in, up to and including, you know, decision makers and people who, who decide who's going to get the money and who's going to get what services and whatnot. And then, and then the person themselves. So the person can have stigmatized beliefs about themselves. So if we look at all those different groups, we know that, you know, stigma can create distancing socially. I want to say social distancing, but right now that means something different. But in other words, we kind of shun or avoid, you know, people with addictions because we're afraid of them. We don't, we don't, you know, we're judging what they're doing. So we isolate them and that makes addiction even worse. We know isolation help, you know, sort of prepare perpetuates addiction, partly because of of loneliness. And then this belief, well, if they're isolating me, if they're rejecting me, then I really must be a bad person. So it reinforces that internal stigma. And and on the, you know, on the systemic stigma level, we've had a real challenge with not having good, robust treatment services and funding. Because if you're, if your decision makers, your, your, your people who make policies and laws don't believe that this is an issue worth intervening on mm-hmm. from a public health standpoint. They, they just won't put the energy and the money into it because they think it's the person's fault. They did it to themselves. Why should we as a community put our time, effort, and resources into helping them? If right. they just wouldn't have used this, wouldn't have happened. But, but the, the fallacy in that is that the vast majority of people who, who use drugs and alcohol don't develop an addiction. So to say it's just as simple as, well, if they wouldn't have used this, wouldn't have happened. You know, a lot of people use and, and roll that dice and it doesn't happen. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, so there's a, there's a lot, there's a big flaw in that logic. Yeah, that's for sure. I know. So I didn't put this in our outline, but I'm curious if you've watched the show. So there's a new show on Hulu that's airing currently. I think the first five episodes are out, but it's called Dope Sick. And it's about the opioid crisis. 
And Dopesick is not a uh, sponsor of this show. I'm just we're just talking about it. But it but it sort of looks at things from a lot of different perspectives, like folks yes. who became or started to have issues with OxyContin, but then also focuses on the Sackler family who runs Purdue Pharma, who created that yes. drug, and how they would, you know con medical experts into saying things like pseudo addiction. And I wondered if like, are you familiar with that term? And like, how does that, does it anger you as like a person who works in the field or like, what are your feelings about it? Yeah, that that's, that's a junk science or fake science term. I mean, there's, there's, there isn't such a thing as pseudo addiction. And, you know, there, it's well documented now and the Sacklers are paying the big price they need to be paying that they knew very well what they were doing and that Oxycontin was extremely addictive. So I, I have that, I have that show in my, in my, on my list to watch. Uh, and it's based on a book that's been out. I've been out for a while, but you know, it's the, the opioid crisis is very complex. I, I did a presentation for some high school students back, back a couple of years ago on this. And I like sat down and gathered everything I could find, like what caused this? And I came up with something like 25 or 30 different drivers. So it was a perfect storm. Now there were some big giant pieces like the Oxycontin and what, what the Sacklers and Purdue Pharma did, but there were lots of other things and lots of other both systemic entities or structural entities and individual and community things that were going on. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So I think once you get around to watching the show, it basically it sort of time jumps between the time period of like 1997 till about 2003. And so it'll go between like all those years in between. It's, it's really fascinating to watch. I've seen the first four episodes, but yeah. Plug plug for dope sick, but not as Um, so sorry. Sorry about that aside, but I was just, that's all right. While I was talking to you, if you had seen it. Um, So let's go, let's go back to stigma. Well, I think also when we think about like how addiction is portrayed in popular media, that could definitely still contribute to stigma and the stigmas that people hold. But why do you think that stigma has become such a, a hot topic nowadays? Sure. Well, I mean, I, I think stigma has has always been around and but we've just really started to deal with it since the opioid crisis and you know part of part of a little bit of background you know that what's made the opioid crisis different was that other unlike some other crises i mean this is kind of the second opioid crisis there was a heroin crisis in the in the 70s it was in primarily the urban black community and it was heroin it wasn't prescription opioids it was it was not handled as the public health crisis like it is now then we had a crack cocaine um, crisis in the in the 90s then we had a methamphetamine crisis in the in the early 2000s again those were all illicit substances and they were in very specific pockets of of individuals mostly lower ses and people of color so there's been a lot of classism and racism rolled into our lack of, of response as well. Yeah. So the opioid crisis hit, you know, the the 17-year-old next door who was found dead on his mother's kitchen, you know. That's part of what made this crisis different and it it hit a wide swath of people and it in many cases was driven through or begun by prescription doctor prescribed medication. 
And so that's made this crisis different. And and while we our eyes are wide open to the to the classism and the and the racism that was in, inherent in the lack of response to those other crises, we see the silver lining now that it's awful this happened, but at least finally people's eyes are getting open to the broad public health problem we've always had of addiction and needed more attention to it. So, but why why are we talking about stigma now? Is because when we stepped back and said, okay, we got to go with this opioid crisis, and by we I mean you know nationally and all the way down to the local levels, we said, what do we need to do? Well, what part of the problem is people think people with addiction are awful people who brought it on themselves. Mm-hmm. Who you know why should we help them? They're just a bunch of blank blank blank, and so. We had to work on that barrier if we were going to get people to accept this as a public health problem, which it is, understand the science of it as a brain disease, and then to put resources into it. And I don't just mean money. I mean families putting resources into it, communities putting resources, us believing that this is all of our problems, not just the person with the addiction under the bridge. It's all of our problems, just like obesity and diabetes and heart disease. These are community public health problems. And, and we, we need to have a broad support. So I think it has risen it to the surface because no matter what you do on the other side of that barrier, if you don't eliminate the barrier, it's not going to work. Right. And so really, what can we do on both an individual and maybe the larger systemic level to help eliminate stigma, not just with substance use, but with, I mean, pretty much any kind of stigma? Yeah, I think first and foremost, get educated. You know, I mean, it's really easy to just sit back and judge people. But what do you really know about that? What do you really know about STDs? You know, have you have you bothered to even see how you get one? You know, and in this day and time, I just say, you know, if you have a computer, there's no excuse for ignorance. There is excellent science at your fingertips within a few minutes. You don't have to commit a lot of time. So get yourself educated. You know, as far as addiction, you know, the National National Institute of Drug Abuse, NIDA, Centers for Disease Control, CDC site, you can just Google, you know, yeah. and, and read for five or 10 minutes. Let your mind be open and let the truth you know, the science come through to you. So I think that's important, education. I also think that we can, a really super thing that 100% of people can do is work on eliminating stigmatizing language. Mm. Because, you know, and some people say, well, that's just, you know, you're just parsing words or splitting hairs. No, words matter. Words matter and they drive beliefs and they communicate our beliefs to other people. And so we're getting rid of phrases like substance abuse, Right. Because abuse has this moral connotation to it. We're saying substance use disorder or addiction. We now use person first language. So we don't call somebody an addict because that makes their whole identity their addiction. I mean, we don't do that with other medical conditions. So we say a person with addiction or a person with substance use disorder. We don't talk about, we don't use any of those those names. I'm just going to say a couple of them. They're ugly, like junkie and crackhead. We don't say that. Those are those are horrible words. And and for a person with addiction, they're kind of like some of the other worst words you can think of to call to call a person. So we don't use those words. And interestingly enough, I said I said was saying something similar to this the other day to someone and they said, oh, I didn't know those I didn't know those words were pejorative or, you know, were a label like that. They thought that was it, that was just what you say. 
Right. So again, getting educated, you can just Google non-stigmatizing language and you'll get a ton of resources. And, you know, I'm really encouraging people print that up, put it on your print it out and put it on your bulletin board. Something we can all do. Yes. And what we can do is we'll actually put all those resources that you named in the description of this podcast. So people can go and, and click and uh, visit all those great websites and, and educate themselves. But how can like WVU students be better allies to those who are struggling with substance use issues? Like, oh, and how can we be better allies to those who are in recovery? Sure, that's a great question. Well, first and foremost, I mean, they can go down to the Collegiate Recovery Program at the Serenity Place. They can hang out, spend time. They can be, they can participate in events through Collegiate Recovery. They can volunteer there. They can either even pursue being a student employee or a or a graduate assistant there. So that's a more formal kind of thing. But just day to day, I think if you know someone's struggling to tell them you care, ask how you can support them, have good boundaries, but communicate your love and concern for them. Don't just turn a blind eye if you see someone getting into trouble, you know, reach out, tell them your concern. And we we should approach this and not avoid it. People in recovery or early recovery, you know, I say if you found out your neighbor had cancer, like you'd be taking them a casserole. You'd be asking them if you could mow their lawn. But if we hear that somebody in our neighborhood has addiction, like we whisper behind our hands. And, you know, so if you hear that somebody in your dorm or your sorority or your class is having trouble, reach out, say, hey, I've heard you're having some struggles, you know, how can I help you? Right. You know, when was the last time you ate? Can I, can I get you a hamburger or something? You know, you want to, I'm going to this fun thing at the dorm. You want to come with me? You know, so offering support is huge instead of isolating and rejecting the person. Yeah. And actually, one of the programs from Collegiate Recovery is a Recovery Ally training, and they host those multiple times throughout the semester. And we'll put the CRP's website in the description of this podcast, too, in case folks want to take advantage of that training, which is free. Everything that Collegiate Recovery is free. Um, so, And Courtney, yeah. not only that, but Collegiate Recovery in collaboration with our department, Olivia Pape, the director, and I have developed a course a one credit hour recovery allyship and advocacy course. So there's a, a small training you can take, but also if you're looking for a one credit hour course this spring, Olivia will be teaching that course so you can get a credit and you can also learn how to better support people um, and advocate for policy change, et cetera. Nice. Well, that's great. Actually, Olivia is our guest for next week. So I'll, I can also ask her about that. That's a, that's great. Cause that's a, that's new, right? That's just brand new. We're all, it's okay. actually going to be a special topics course this spring, and I can give you the number so you can put it up on your if you want. And then as of next fall, it will be a full a full fledged course. That's awesome. Wow. Can I put in one other plug for a course? Yeah, of course, of course. So for the honors students out there, we we also every spring I'm all, I'm doing an honors book study. And that is a one credit hour, eight week course. And we read books about addiction and recovery and then just talk about them for an hour a week. It's a blast. And this 
spring, we're going to be reading the, the book One Hit Away by Jordan Barnes. It's a memoir of his opioid addiction, heroin addiction and recovery. And then we're going to be reading a book by our colleague here at West Virginia, John Temple, the journalism professor who wrote American Pain, which is a journalistic nonfiction book about the pill mills in Florida and how that impacted West Virginia. Oh, cool. Well, awesome. If you're a bookworm, that would be a great way to learn more about addiction and recovery. Yes. All right. Well, those are all great opportunities. So hopefully some of our listeners take advantage of that. Well, Frankie, so much. thank you so much for uh, joining me today. I always love talking to you outside of our AOD coalition meetings. Uh, so yep. you're very welcome. <laughs> yes. Uh, and to our listeners, thank you all so much for listening. And we will catch you next time on Wellbeing Wednesdays.